Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the soundtrack to a life. I eat too much to die, and not enough to stay alive. I'm sitting in the middle I am Chris. Welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life. With me, once again, is our first returning guest, Cam. Cam, welcome back. Hello. Remind people who you are in case they have forgotten since uh, six months ago. I am Cam. I am a writer, dungeon master, and bartender. Solid. And in celebration of the release of the Manic Street Preacher's new album, uh, Resistance is Futile, in about a week. Cam and I are coming in to talk about the Manic Street Preacher's 1994 album, The Holy Bible. So strap the fuck in, kids, because <laughs> it's about to get dark. It's going to be a ride. So, at 16, I was firmly into the find a couch to crash on, or else I'm going to spend the night nursing a plate of fries and a Diet Coke at Denny's at Crowchild, because I'm afraid to go back to my parents' house and I'm unwilling to do so more than two or three times a week. And even then, only once I'm certain that no one will be there, so that I can sneak downstairs and hope nobody notices, period of my life. Shout out to Denny's Crowchild for never kicking me out. Nice. And I am constantly angry and hopeless and isolated. Angry because this was not a fair life to force upon a 16-year-old, hopeless because I could see no way out, and even if I could, I did not believe that I deserved one, and isolated because I could not express any of this to the people around me. That's the great thing about depending on the people around you for a couch to crash. You have to be perpetually funny and charming, or else you might be on the street for the night. At least that's what I thought. But whether 16-year-old me was right or wrong, that was my emotional space at that age. An unexpressible anger married to a profound despair. Married in turn to the sort of angst that 16-year-olds are very good at. And as you'd imagine, I was searching for music that would properly express these feelings, even if I didn't know I was. Enter the Manic Street Preachers. The Manics had released two records previous to this, and this was the first one that found its way to me. And it hit like a bomb. Everything I wanted to express at that age can be found here. Every desperate moment or pit of despair, every snarl of fury or empty howl of helplessness, everything that I could not express, would never express, could be found on this brutal, crushing, furious record, and I fell in love with it immediately. It was also this period during which I spent a lot of time at the downtown public library, reading old issues of New Musical Express and Melody Maker on microfilm. It's a good way to kill time between when you get out of high school and when everyone back at home has hopefully gone to sleep. And you better believe I started reading every article or interview with the Manics I could find. And in doing so, I fell in love with Mr. Richie Edwards. He'd written the lyrics for most of this record, and I saw in him the same sort of broken, brutalized person I fancied myself at the time. But he'd made it out. He'd found a way forward, I thought, through art. He'd faced the worst parts of his life, of himself, through his music, and he'd somehow found a way to get past them, to overcome them and come out the other side. And if he could do it, 16-year-old me thought, so could I. Anyway, a year later, Richie Edwards was dead. My st own story has a happier ending, I think. I bounced around roommates and girlfriends and couches, and I made my own art, and eventually started getting paid enough to do so that I didn't have to worry every minute, and I got old enough that living in a hotel room became exhausting rather than liberating. And I got a regular job and a stable living situation, 
And if 16-year-old me could see today me, he'd be shocked at how stable my life is. He'd be shocked to learn I'm even still alive. And I do try my best to be grateful of that fact. But whatever else has happened to me, my love of this record remains. I've burned through a total of five copies of the Holy Bible. Two on cassette, one of which I literally played so often that it stopped playing. Two on CD, one because I'd gotten a CD player, and one on the record's 10th anniversary for the bonus tracks, and one via iTunes for even more bonus material. This is the perfect combination of art and audience. It hit me at exactly the time in my life that I needed it, and if I had to make a list of the five best albums ever made, this would absolutely be on it. This is important to art to me in a profoundly personal way, and it was what I needed and had the decency to arrive at the moment that I needed it. The Manics continued on after Richie Edwards' disappearance, and they were still great, and they are still great. I'm buying the new Manics record the day that it comes out, and I might live-tweet my first listen, I haven't decided yet. But they weren't the same after this, which maybe is okay, because I wasn't the same either. We're all moving forward all of us, all the time. And as Manic Street Preachers grew up and became more emotionally stable over time, so did I. Which is nice. It's nice to have a favorite band that grows up as you do. It makes for a good touchstone as time passes by. So Cam, you've never heard the Holy Bible by Manic Street Preachers, and now you have. Tell me, what do you think? My first listen through, I had seen where it had been the inspiration for a lot of bands growing up for me, but it was almost that core. There was no tethers off of it. It was very much wrapped around an original idea. For me, the first listen through it, it had that very almost like gritty kind of punk, but that that almost uh, like misfits horror kind of sound to it, where nothing was very pronounced but everything having almost that muted, gritty quality to it is what really uh, stuck to me the first time around. And when the, the track Faster came around, it was, it was, it was like a slap because it, it went from very convoluted, half-sung, half-spoken lyrics to, to just this very fast, almost bright song. And like, it, it was, yeah, it was listening through the first time. It was, it was a journey. Like, it, I see where you're coming from when it was things that you you wanted to express it did have that angsty feel to it it was it was an excellent listen it was not what i was expecting at all with a name like manic street preachers it sounds like it's going to be happy and fun and you know like it, it still has that punk sound to it but th it was not what i was expecting at all it yeah was, it was a good thing yeah it was energetic without being joyful <laughs> yeah yeah that's a perfect way to describe it yeah, as it was written, the gentleman who wrote the lyrics was going through depression and alcoholism, and he was a cutter and an anorexic. And this was the sound of that? Yeah. I remember even looking through, after finding this album, I had just typed in Manic Street Preachers into the Google image search, and one of the, the prominent images on there was of him. And I don't remember the word that he had carved into his arm, but there was a picture of him with his, his arm extended, with word, what, what the word was carved into his arm. Oh, it's for real. For real, yeah. Yeah, a music journalist came up to him backstage at the show and said that there were music fans out there who didn't think that they were for real, that it was all a put on. Oh, wow. So he carved it into his arm. That's a way to do it. In lieu of an answer. Yeah. <laughs> 
That is a way to do it. Yeah. No, I have that tattooed on my collarbone. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's my Manic Street Preacher's tattoo. That makes a lot of sense. But I didn't know that he didn't answer the reporter, even the, the, the story behind that. But that's, uh, wow. Yeah, no, it is difficult to not romanticize the self-destruction of your heroes. Oh, seriously. And people who are going through depression and self-harm, which I certainly had a period where I did, though with uh, cigarette lighters rather than... Razor blades. Yeah. Uh, needs to be taken seriously and approached respectfully. But also, it's punk as fuck. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I had even read a, an interview with not Richie Edwards, but the vocalist. Oh, James Dean Bradford. Yes. Who had said that even though their music was this way, they in no way advocated suicide or self-harm or it was it was purely artistic for him and to say that to the fans essentially don't go out and and do this like actually seek help if you need it don't do what we've done yeah which is a good message to get out there especially during a period where a lot of rock stars were going down yeah well just a year before uh the disappearance of Richie Edwards was Kurt Cobain's famous. Yeah. Yep. Which I guess is what happens when you build a music scene around uh, the abstract notion of depression. Yeah. Which music is a great way to not deal, but cope with those kinds of feelings. It's a lot better than you could do with drugs or alcohol or, or what have you, or, or even that self-destruction. It's an excellent way to deal with that. Yeah, no, it very much is. And this record especially, I can only imagine, because it was the first Mannix record that I um, found my way to, what it must have sounded like as it was coming out. Because the two albums that they released previous to this are much more traditionally minded, like glammy punk in the late 80s, early 90s, pre-Nirvana realm. Like they are, they are produced like mainstream rock records. Okay. Of their time. Where this just came out of left field for most people, I would imagine. Yeah, this this was a weird swerve. So their name was kind of that bright and happy. Yeah, kind of. Okay. Kind of. Um, the other the other lyricist, Nikki Wire, who does not have a lifetime history with depression and self-annihilation, previous to this did about half of the songwriting. Okay, okay. And after this he did most of the songwriting, obviously. But this one was two-thirds to three-quarters Richie. Okay. And was it was Richie the other half of that? Yeah, it was Nikki and Richie splitting lyric duties. Okay. And then James and Sean, the drummer, would come up with the music. Okay. And if I understand correctly, they were working more or less independently of one another. Okay. If you were wondering why the lyrics exist in such complex paragraphs that are difficult to set to music... The dude in charge of music and the dude in charge of lyrics were not the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I did notice that. Like yeah. it, it did seem like the almost the music came first, but they had this idea that they wanted to uh, to express. So those lyrics had to fit into those bars. It, it did come out across that. Not all songs, but a, at least half. Yeah, which is a fun way to um, write 
I think. I, I imagine it'd be a very difficult way to write, but it's a fun thing to listen to. Um, Elvis Costello had similar issues. <laughs> okay. Where the lyrics got overwordy and didn't quite scan. And had to be fit. And then somewhere. just put them in. Put yeah. them in. <laughs> this is the song that I've written, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> Well, and this lies in direct contrast which uh, with a lot of modern music today, where everything is, is kind of fit into the, the last 100%, I don't know where I'm going with this, everything is, is very neatly placed into its place, yeah. instead of having that, that contrasting between music and lyrics, and let's, let's fit these together. Yeah, we have a team of professional people uh, making sure that everything goes well with everything else. Which is great if you don't like rough edges to have the rough edges sanded off. Which some music does need that rough edge. Yeah. Especially music like this. Like, this would not have worked at all well, this were does... it well polished. Yeah, well, exactly. This, and it doesn't sound like they had gone for the sound of let's make a rough and gritty record. It sounded like this is what we're going to play now. This, yeah. this is what we're feeling, so let's play this. Yeah, this is very much, um, it's a back-to-your-roots feeling record. It's a take-it-back-to-first-principles. The one previous to this sounded very much like a mainstream rock record of its time. And if I understand correctly from the small amount of research that I did, uh, members of the band found that a little bit disappointing. Really? Yeah. Uh, which I thought it was fun. Like, I thought it was... I liked it because it, it didn't have that slow droning sound to the guitars. The guitar, as they were played... There were much more major chords yeah. than it seemed fitting with the music, but it, it still fit very well in, in contrast. Yeah, because James would like to belt an anthem. Yeah. And is good at that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, he's got a really commanding barking quality to his voice. Yes. Um, that you can't help but listen to. Yes. Completely. One of the things that I noticed that stuck out for me, my favorite vocalist of all time is Chester Bennington. Oh, yeah. Of Lincoln Park. And he, James, James Dean... Bradford. Bradford yeah. has a very similar, almost grinding quality to when he's, he sings higher. Mm. And that, as immediately I noticed that. And he had very clear, but also very grindy. Like, he seemed very in control for this style of music, of his voice. Yeah, he's very disciplined. They're all very disciplined performers, I think. Which I guess is why they're still doing things Yeah. Uh, as of a week from now. I feel like you have to, as a band, be disciplined to make it more than one or two albums. That's very much the case. Otherwise, uh, you all want to kill each other <laughs> and are at each other's throats. Uh, for the remainder of your career. Which can make good music, but obviously doesn't make for... Uh... Not for 20 years, it doesn't. No. <laughs> Fair. You can get like three good records out of that dynamic. Yeah. And then make way for the next band who actually kind of hates each other. Which is fine, too. I know several bands that just did that and enjoy them all very much. Which, again, can make good music, but it doesn't, over a long time, make for a very good life. Yeah. And just for fandom, it is fun to watch a band grow up with you. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I'm looking forward to any release this year more than I am looking forward to the new Mannix. Oh, especially since they had spoken to you so deeply. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, no, these guys hit me hard and stuck with me. They were my other window for my UK trip. Um, it was either go in March for my actual birthday to see Morrissey or go in late April to catch Manic Street Preachers. Okay. And then in the end, I settled on my actual birthday. Fair. Because it's choice. a birthday trip. Yeah. <laughs> go on your birthday. You only get so many of those. That's a fact. That's a fact. Uh, fewer every year. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yep, yep. But yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. They never sounded like this again. I imagine this had probably influenced what they had sounded like after this. Oh yeah, no, they're in it. This this has always been a part of the mix, but this is probably too nihilist to be sustainable. Yeah, it, it definitely, especially with the way that they do their lyrics, especially in this album, it would kind of fade off after a while. There's only so wordy that you can be while still... There, there has to come a time when your ideas have to come across clear. Yeah, feel. that's absolutely true. And this is a density of ideas issue. Oh, yeah. It, it um, took at least... Rather than a clarity. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, there are songs about prostitution, imperialism, the nature of free speech, the Holocaust, anorexia, serial killers, their position on the death penalty, <laughs> uh, international revolution, childhood trauma, fascism, and suicide over the course of this record. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> what about anorexia? Uh, was the one that first really caught my ear for the lyrics. Oh, Four Stone Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was it was a very weird title, and I, I actually had to look up how much a stone was to figure out how much that that actually was. And Four Stone Seven is, I believe, eighty-one pounds. Yeah, it's the weight at which life for a human is not sustainable. Yeah, but it was almost glorified. Like the person who was experiencing the anorexia as part of the the lyrics almost glorified themselves to be not a, a godlike figure, but in a way that they were doing this right thing for them. Like it's not for everybody, but for me, this is my perfect self. Which, yeah, that was awesome. I want to walk on awesome. snow and not leave footprints. Yeah, that was a like that was. There was nothing else that could have been the chorus there. That was awesome. Yeah. No, that was a really harrowing song that I could not listen to often enough at the time. I had that tune on repeat during a period of time where you had to physically stop the tape and rewind it to play a song on repeat. Yeah, and find just that perfect part again to, to start that. Yeah, that was... Uh, and apparently also uh, Richie's actual experience with anorexia. So that's... Shattering. Yeah. <laughs> Especially to to somebody who has never experienced body images in quite that... Or body images. Wow. Uh, dysmorphia. The, yeah, dysmorphia. A problem with your body image as, as you see it. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly insightful to not only hear but feel a song like this. Sung and portrayed in such a way that you can fit yourself inside the mind of somebody who's experiencing this. Yeah, they're very good at crafting songs from the point of view of somebody whose point of view the listener would otherwise have a hard time sharing. 
which is a hard thing to do is to put we we constantly say walk a mile in somebody else's shoes you know a, a lot of sayings like that but it's it's really music like this that if you give a song like four stone seven two or three listens it really puts you behind that mindset of somebody who's experiencing something like that and just how distorted their view is from yours yeah and yeah to to give that a, a good hard look to actually understand what somebody who thinks that this might be a good thing why they think it's a good thing yeah and that's at its best what art should aspire to uh, yeah agreed very much like so. you should understand someone better for having experienced what they've created and that doesn't always happen no and i'm also very in favor of entertainment. Yeah, agreed. Well, and some art is meant to just catalog that time in history. Yeah, and it very much did. Yeah. And it was a time that could not sustain. And then on February 1st of 1995, uh, Richie vanished and left us with a body of work and a bunch of conspiracy theories to play with. I read the Wikipedia article about his disappearance and it was, there were a few times where it, it could have been that maybe he ended his life, but he was also in interviews against yeah, suicide. Yeah. And he'd withdrawn money from his bank on his way. 200 euros a day yeah. or something like that. Uh, he'd, yeah. he'd taken his meds with him. Yeah. There were sightings after the fact. In India, of all places. Sure. One of the ones that I read. Yeah. But, I mean, that happens with most rock stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But, I mean, if you're going to disappear, go to the place where there's a billion-plus people. Yeah. Even yeah. back then, they were probably closing on at least 800, 900 million. Yeah. If you want to lose yourself, go to where humanity is the most dense. Yeah. No, it's a terrific way to vanish. If you want to, yeah. If you need. Uh, if you cannot handle fame. Although, specifically for the Manic Street Preachers, anywhere outside of uh, the UK. Would have been a place to go. <laughs> yeah, they uh, are very big there. And did not export to anywhere near the same degree as some of their contemporaries did. Which is a shame. This wound up... A record that sounded like this wound up hitting number six on the UK charts. That's amazing. And selling 600,000 copies around the world. Wow. Probably a lot of that is people like me who've bought it over and over again on multiple formats. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but, like, faster... Uh, Revol and She Is Suffering all hit the top 30. She Is Suffering, I could definitely see. That was, like, the the earworm for me off of this album was She Is Suffering. Yeah. The bass for that line, every, everything, but particularly how the song just kind of starts off with just, it almost sounds like a, a walking bass, yeah, but, yeah. but played with, with singular note progression. It, it was... Yeah, that caught my... Yeah, it really it really sticks with you. And it's as close as they got on this to a sing-along. These songs are not meant to be sang-along to. <laughs> More. They later wrote songs that you can sing-along to, but this was not among them. <laughs> no. These much more sound like sitting at a, a table with the headphones in in a contemplative downward cast kind of mood. Yeah, this is uh, one of the best parts about this band is that they alternate between really stadium-friendly shout-along records and just them pitching up and going, okay, but this time we got some shit to work through. 
So sit down. I love when bands will do that though, because yeah. some bands can maintain that same sound yeah. over and over and over again, and it works for them. ACDC, they can do that. There, there are bands that can do that, but bands who will put their emotion into their art and, and or I should say, be experimental with their sound. Yeah. That keeps it fresh for not only their fans, but for people like myself who discover them later. Yeah. And it also, I think, for themselves, it's a good way of announcing we are making this music because we like this style of music. Yeah. And we are making it together because we enjoy one another's company. Yeah. But we are making this music. You can join us on this journey if you want, but if you don't want... We'll see you in a couple of years when we come back with a record of uh, songs that sound good at summer festivals. Yeah. <laughs> and you can get back on board for that. Either way, we're doing this this year. <laughs> Anybody want to stay? Stay, 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 stay. Anybody want to go? Go, 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 go. <laughs> and I feel like that's very humanizing because nobody remains the same person that they were yeah. a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, what have you. It, it makes them much more accessible. Uh, how old were they generally when they wrote this album? I'm going to probably say early 20s. That makes a lot of sense. Um, they had released two albums previous to this. The first is very much uh, young punks with a record deal, having fun with it. Okay. The second one is a terrific collection of songs, but it's, it is trying to crack the U.S. market. It's what now we have fame. What do we do with yeah, this fame? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then this. That's three very distinct, but obviously a natural progression yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, styles. Yeah. Yeah. And then after this, they released Everything Must Go, which was their, um, well, the start of the period where they were proper rock stars. Okay. Okay. Uh, through the UK. Uh, Richie wrote half of that one as well from notes that they found. That's awesome. Yeah, he wrote uh, he wrote two records. After? After this. Wow. Because the following one, they had all of the lyrics that he'd been working on previous to his disappearance. Okay. And then like 10 or 12 years later, they found one of his old notebooks. Yeah. Uh, among his possessions. That's interesting. And they tried to sit down as people approaching their 40s now and write the Richie Edwards record that they would have. That's an interesting... Because that's other people interpreting... Like, he's obviously not there to explain, well, this is what I meant, and then you can kind of change the lyrics from, from there. But yeah, yeah. directly interpreting it as, you know, probably his three best friends. Yeah. Or four best friends? Three best friends. Three best friends. Yeah. Interpreting it from what they knew about him, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it really works. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they've released a bad record yet. I hope they never will. Yeah. <laughs> I think that comes from being a band that will change their style and evolve and experiment as a band. There may be a record that you don't like, but can still admit that, oh, that's a good record. Because yeah. changing it up, for some people, gives you that energy. Yeah, it's energizing. It doesn't become a job anymore. Uh, it's a process that you can approach. Which art shouldn't feel like a job. It shouldn't feel like, you know, no artist that I know... <laughs> has a nine-to-five where they create art. Oh, people do that. Oh, I know. I know. It, it doesn't seem like a like a regular thing. No, no. It's something that you do as an experiment. Yeah. 
That was uh, that was also an Elvis Costello. This is turning into an Elvis Costello episode. <laughs> uh, but he had a period during the 80s where he wanted to see how that would work. So he rented an office in a building, and then he would wake up and eat breakfast, and then he would go to that office where he would just sit in a chair and write songs nonstop from okay. between 9 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And then just go Every home. day. And then he would hang up the guitar, and then he would go home. Huh. And have dinner, and you would do that five days a week as though it were a full-time office job. That's an interesting experiment, though. Like, that is that is such an artistic way to approach yeah. <laughs> the nine-to-five. Yeah, yeah. And, like, Elvis Costello records from that period of his career were not worse. That's <laughs> like, fair. He was still doing his thing really well. When you have that fresh approach, which for him it was a fresh approach. Yeah. For, you know, if somebody who had that office job was going to start writing songs. That's probably how they would start writing songs is I have to get up, get some breakfast. Where yeah. If you're touring. I've, I've trained myself to have discipline for this part of my day. Yeah. Let's approach it like that. Yeah. Instead <clears throat> of just going with whatever kind of feels right, which I feel like a lot of songwriting comes from. Yeah. yeah. It's, I feel like writing a song now about this particular thing. I, I got I to gotta get it out in my book or have some mnemonic to remember it by or, or what have you. Yeah. One of the things I realized having um, re-listened to this after having recorded an episode about Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine, I apparently want for my punk rock to use dialogue samples from films and television. I really like that as well. It, it worked very well in this. Yeah, it really brought a lot of atmosphere. But it's weird that my two favorite punk records both involve that. It's not a regular trope. And they're using them to very different effect. The Holy Bible and... 101 Damnations Okay. Uh, by Carter. Okay. Which we discussed on here previous with Daniel. But yeah, they both are throwing a bunch of samples in among their guitar rock. That way that you do with guitar rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sample-heavy style of music, as we all know. <laughs> With grainy radio clips. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and I don't... I mean, here it's incredibly atmospheric. It is. It, it sets the tone because it, they don't seem to take just radio clips from British radio. No. But wherever that feeling kind of struck them. Yeah, 100%. The, uh, the dialogue that they're using at the beginning of the intense humming of evil is uh, from the coverage of the Nuremberg Trials. That would do it, yeah. Yep. No, they are not fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> or even the one from the start of the song about prostitution. Oh, if white America told the truth for one day, the world would end? Yes. I <laughs> knew I was going to uh, fuck that up if I <laughs> tried. <laughs> but just the beginning of that, it, all, it, like, it doesn't sound realistic. It sounds like somebody recorded that. But like it, it, it comes from... Uh, and I'm and I'm drawing a blank, but it's 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 horrific to think that there are places, even within North America, even within you know what like Westernized Europe, that still have the like the terrible side of prostitution. Yeah, yeah. there's very self empowering prostitution. That that's definitely a thing. But yeah, just that people are are still sold every day, and they're like they hit that really well. Yeah, especially with that that opening clip that they played. Yeah, yeah, everything. It's just it really ties the piece together. Yeah. Um, that was why I was a little bit surprised that they scored three chart singles off this record because I don't know that I 
could listen to the songs here decontextualized from one another. That's fair. I think before like the 2000s really hit, it was you listened to the entire album yeah. instead of just the singles, yeah. right? Yeah, you'd be listening to the album or the radio. So a producer obviously had been listening to the whole album and went, you know, this particular song sounds radio friendly, but had been coming away from the feeling that the entire album gave him. And I imagine that got, well, a lot of people, especially in the UK, to listen to them. That makes sense. Yeah, it almost certainly did. They had had some chart success previous to this. Uh, when I did look them up in Old Enemies and uh, Melody Makers, there was certainly plenty of coverage. This was the sort of band that is made to be interviewed. Oh, yeah. Well, just from the density of their lyrics? Yeah. They would have a lot to That's the thing, and they are that articulate in real life. That's awesome. And um, the other lyricist, uh, Nikki, who does not get showcased as much on this record, but comes to more prominence, gives very good interview. I could see that. Uh, He's got a really quick wit, and he's not working through some shit. (laughs) (laughs) He's, he's the I don't care and will get up in your face. That's the style the, of punk. The punk vibe comes yeah, from. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why this uh, this record wound up being ranked in most of the magazines from that area. End of your best of lists. Yeah, which I could see. Especially, like, some of it isn't catchy. But, yeah, things like Faster and She is Suffering are very catchy. Yeah. Even, even though they have that very, like, mellow yeah they're compelling compelling is a good word they're the kind of things you want to stew in for a little while oh and even the music apart from the lyrics very much facilitates that yeah yeah 100 percent. it is um very dense and atmospheric to present the ideas that this band is trying to work their way through in a way that really succeeds for me at least oh yeah for me as well yeah uh, also, I would be hideously remiss if I didn't point out if white America told the truth for one day, the world would fall apart. Of walking abortion, archives of pain, the intense humming of evil. These dudes come up with the best song titles in rock right now. They continued to do so throughout their career. If you tolerate this, your children will be next is the best title of a number one hit single that has ever been written. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. I don't agree with that, especially because it's not only relevant to the song itself, but it comes across as authentic. Yeah. Nothing against Fall Out Boy or Panic at the Disco, but when they have extremely long, wordy titles to their songs... Sometimes it does not match up with the song. It, it yeah, it seems... feels it feels like they're not writing the title in the same room as the song. No, it's put there for effect and to grab eyes. Yeah. Not necessarily tied to the song. Which is also fine. Yeah, but when I had seen If White America for the first time, I did not expect the title to be relevant to the song. Because you had been trained on that... Style of music. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this is... I feel like this is probably why I did not get as deeply into late 90s punk as I could have. Because they had that? Well, because this is what 90s punk could have sounded like. Okay, okay. (laughs) So less so with, like, 
the early word number yeah. bands? Yeah. Okay. And then I got like halfway back on in time for emo, but even then I was a little bit disconnected from it. Emo didn't... I already knew what updated punk was capable of. Yeah. Well, and emo didn't have, for the most part, that punk sound to it. It didn't have that that kind of grit to it. Some of them did. Some of them did. Ask somebody who's about eight years younger than you. Okay. My uh, my friend's kid, Liv. Hi, Liv! Her first punk band was Fall Out Boy. Okay. Uh, that was what introduced her to the genre. Okay. So, like, those bands are doing the same job. That's fair. It's just that you had already had that job done for you. True. <laughs> I, I had also grown up with Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance. It's their... And this might just be North America versus UK kind of sound. It could be. Um, but they, it, it didn't have that same kind of rough edge to it. Yes. Yes, music was very produced by that point. Especially after the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, that, that 2000 almost divider. Yeah, because well, because every scene exists in opposition to that which came before, right? And by the late 90s, they were reacting to the early 90s. Okay. Where all of the bands were kind of really rootsy and humble and striving for a very specific notion of authenticity. Okay. And everything was beige and brown. (laughs) And then the bands who wanted to rebel against that... They needed to have big color. Yeah. As far as that, that... Yeah, okay. Yeah. And also just the technology had changed such that you could produce a punk, punk record as though it were a pop record easily. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, um, like when Blondie produced Parallel Lines as though it were a pop record, that took months with a pop producer that they had hired for that specific purpose. Okay. As they had to change all of their working habits in order to make that fit. That makes sense. Whereas now, it's much easier. Well, So can... more people go for it. Yeah. I'm sure there are numerous programs out there where you can record and polish the music yourself. And while it might take longer, it's being produced yourself. You don't have to pay you know, somebody to yeah. mix and, and, and sand the edges off. Yeah, no, I know a number of bands who produce most of their material that way, because it can be done. Well, and that is the democratizing effect uh, of technology. And now that you can sand the edges off, a lot of bands do that I've I've seen and experienced do tend to do that because it, it does come across a little bit more clear. Yeah. Whereas if it has that, that rougher sound to it as this album does, it's intentional now. You didn't want to sand the edges off because you wanted that. I like the edges. The edges are what the song sounds like. Yeah. Uh, the band sounds like. I'm in the midst of debating whether or not to go to Queens of the Stone Age in May. I probably will wind up going. I don't know yet. But... One of the things is they make a very polished record. And about one in four people who I've talked to about should I go bother to go see them live have said, oh, they're not as good live. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whereas for the Holy Bible, this is exactly like what they sound like live. I could see that. Like, I would think. I've never seen them live. But if you came in and said this is their third take and all four of them are in the studio bashing this out... (laughs) I would buy it. Like, this is a very fresh new take that has not been over-rehearsed. Yeah. Yeah. Because it even doesn't sound like all the notes are really in place, but by the end of recording, 
They found it. This, you know, this this is what we're going to do. Okay, this sounds good. Let's go on to the next Perfect. One. Next thing. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Yeah. Uh, whereas now, overthinking it has never been easier. Yeah. And you can get a computer program to uh, overthink it for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at which point, why wouldn't you? Especially now that you can do it yourself. Yeah. Which for some genres of music, like for a synth band or something that is producery, uh, I feel like that's a very great boon. Oh, absolutely. Anything in the direction of an electronic music. Yeah, it's uh, it's democratized. You can do it at home. Anybody can make this style of music. It is a glorious utopia if that is what you happen to be into. Which I am. I own a bunch of synth records from today and from the past, and I love them. But for four guys with guitars yelling... It's a bit of a different thing. Something gets missed. Yeah, yeah. especially if it's uh, more of that live breathing and sweating acoustic yeah. electric grindy sound music that you can feel yeah rather than uh music that is made to appeal to you yeah but we've uh we've come to about that point uh we are getting to the end unless i wanted to make this a two hour long episode which i kind of do but i don't think anybody wants to listen to that <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing that I, I i'd wanted to say is one lyric that particularly stuck out uh with me out of faster was I believe in nothing, but it's my nothing. I love that. It's such a great line. I have no idea exactly what he meant by that, but I love that. It's it's it almost seems to me that you don't have to explain that feeling. Like yeah. if, you're, if you're feeling something and you don't have words for it, yeah, don't. Yeah, it doesn't need words. Yeah, it's uh, it's nihilism is freedom. Yeah, uh, none of this means anything which liberates us to attribute meaning to whatever we want uh, as long as that thing is authentic to us. I love that. It's so good. Yeah, that even the first listen around when I hadn't fully gotten all the lyrics, that one was just like, I like that. Nice. We're closing on questions because I do every week. You have listened to this multiple times. I suspect that I know the answer, but will you be listening to the Holy Bible again going forward? Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Nice. And will you be exploring Manic Street Preachers uh, further than this? Oh, yeah. Right. Especially now that I know that it's not... I, I have to be... I, I listen to music based on mood. Yeah. So for me, not knowing what this was going into it and now listening to, listening to it, if I had felt more in kind of that mellow or down kind of mood, this would be something that I would listen to to, to kind of like help spin the wheels of that emotion and, and take it somewhere else. But now that I know that they produce not only... Something that's very low key and and gritty as this. Yeah, and they, you know, I'm definitely going to be exploring more Max Street Preachers. Listen to everything must go next. Okay, it's good fist pumping music. It'll get you really amped up. Perfect. And finally, if you had to pick one song off this record to play us out, well, which one would you choose? She is suffering. We are playing out on She is suffering. This has been the soundtrack to a life. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at SoundtrackCast. Subscribe on iTunes or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. Review us, rate us, tell your friends about us. Uh, we have been discussing the Manic Street Preachers. Their new record comes out on the 8th. All of you should buy it and pay with money so that they tour Canada. Buy extra copies to give people as gifts. I would really like to see these guys live, and I have already burned my flying overseas in order to catch a band. So do me a solid, you guys. Pay full price.
<laughs> Have a great week.